pray. Let's uh, just take a minute and do what that song says and just encourage you that uh, you know, the Bible tells us that God invites us to cast all of our cares on Him because He cares for us. And uh, I just encourage you to do that right now. I don't know what's going on in your life, what you're struggling with, where you're hurting. Or maybe you feel really blessed right now, but you know some people that are struggling and hurting. And just encourage you to uh, lift them up as well. Jesus, we thank you that you know our hurts and our sufferings, our sorrows, our sins, our struggles. We thank you that you were tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin. We thank you that that means that you uh, understand because you've experienced uh, betrayal and, and, and pain and uh, rejection. And uh, you're a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we thank you that you um, can empathize with us and you sympathize with us. But we thank you even beyond that, that you're the God who died for us and that you bore our sin and our shame and our suffering and our sorrow. And you defeated death, hell, and the grave in your resurrection and you're ascended at the right hand of the Father. And so we can come to your throne and find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would minister your grace and uh, your mercy to everyone who is listening to this. God, that you'd speak to us through your word and you'd help us to, to cry out to you and help us to share the burdens of our heart uh, with you and that you would uh, just bring comfort and peace where it's needed. Lord, I pray that you'd help us also not just to, to grieve uh, situations and, and, and circumstances uh, in, in life, but uh, to grieve our sin and to bring that to you as well. And we thank you for the cross and the forgiveness that's available. And God, we just pray that your spirit would minister to each one of us and that your will would be done in this time. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome uh, again. We're glad that you're here. Welcome everybody online. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be back in the first couple of chapters of the book of Lamentations. We started a series last week called Beauty Will Rise. And uh, so, again, we're going to look at some different verses in um, uh, chapters 1 and 2, planning next, next couple of weeks to uh, go verse by verse to a lot of chapter 3. Uh, Preston Ford, one of our elders, is going to preach next Sunday. I'm taking a week or so off. But uh, I think part of the reason we're taking some time off right now is uh, you know, this weekend was a big weekend for us. We, we celebrated uh, Lily's graduation. Uh, you know, she graduated Friday night, and as some of the rest of you did, had a party last night. But then uh, today is the anniversary of two painful things in our lives, including the 20th anniversary, uh, 20 years today since my younger brother died. And I think in a lot of ways that's a microcosm of life. It just kind of, everything's kind of woven together. There's good, there's bad, uh, you know, there's joy, there's struggle, there's uh, hard times, there's easier times. And, you know, we seem to agree last week that life is hard and painful. But the question is, what's a proper response to that? What's a godly response to that? 
And what I want us to see today, a lot of what the book of Lamentations is about, is that a godly response to suffering is lament. I'm not saying it's the only response, but it's one uh, response. It's part of our response. Now, I've never preached a sermon on lamenting before, uh, so I don't know how familiar you are with um, the, the word lament. So what are we talking about when we talk about lamenting? I mean, that's where the idea that the title of the book of Lamentations comes from. It's a series of laments. But what is a lament? And i, I got to be honest with you, I, I never really thought I would preach a sermon on lamenting. It just sounds kind of airy-fairy out there uh, to me. You know, I'm the guy who has the reputation for never crying. Uh, which is not completely true. Uh, I do cry, but uh, occasionally. But, you know, me preaching about this, I mean, this, I don't know. It's kind of like me preaching a sermon about how to love your cat well or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, I mean, we, we all sorrow. We may express it in different ways. Some people may come out in tears. Uh, sometimes, you know, I mean, the classic female reaction is tears. The classic male reaction is anger. Right? I remember when we had a miscarriage. Robin's crying. I, I, I'm mad. Or, uh, you know, you don't just have to cry. I mean, uh, some of you uh, remember when uh, Stephen Curse Chapman's daughter was cra- tragically killed several years ago. And he talked about in the aftermath of that, sometimes he would just get alone by himself uh, where nobody could hear him and scream until his voice Uh, was basically gone. I mean, sometimes that's how we react in life. So what's a a, a lament? A a pastor by the name of Mark Rogoff has written an article, and a little chunk of it says this. He says, we step into the world with a cry. Although none of us remembers the moment, the first sound we uttered after leaving the warm and protected confines of our mother's womb was a loud protest. We enter wailing. To cry is human. However, we aren't the only part of the created order expressing sorrow. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.22 that the entire creation groans. Along with the fall of Adam, the created world was infected, infected with the broken effects of sin. Death is the ultimate reminder that something is not right with the world. But there are other examples, including cancer, addictions, failed marriages, relational conflict, loneliness, and abuse. We don't stop crying after birth. It continues because the world is broken. While tears and sorrow are part of our humanity, there's an often neglected prayer language in the Bible for our travels through a broken world. And that's what lament is. Lament is not the same as crying, however. It can include crying, but it's different. And it is uniquely Christian. The Bible is filled with this song of sorrow. Over a third of the psalms, including the one that Brett read earlier, are laments. I mean, why do people go to the psalms, and this is me, not him, in times of of difficulty? Because of that raw honesty. Uh, This, uh, you know, exuberant joy at times, and and this honest expression of sorrow and and brokenness. Um, He goes on to say, the book of Lamentations weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus lamented in the final hours of his life. 
But lament is different than crying because lament is a form of prayer. It is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain. And it has a unique purpose, trust. It is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. The practice of lament is one of the most theologically informed actions a person can take. While crying is fundamental to humanity, Christians lament because they know God is sovereign and good. Christians know His promises in the Scriptures. We believe in God's power to deliver. We know the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. But yet we still experience pain and sorrow. Lament is the language for living between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. It is a a prayer form for people who are waiting uh, for the day Jesus will return and make everything right. Christians don't just mourn, we long for God to end the pain. And if we're honest, we relate with that. I mean, we know what physical pain is, but we know what emotional pain is too. Sometimes we just ache on the inside. That may be over our sin. It may be over our suffering, our loss, a difficult situation. It could be for someone else. It could be about things that are going on in the world. It could be sometimes just wrestling with God. I mean, I think of the prophet Habakkuk. That might be my favorite book in the Old Testament. But he's just wrestling with God, and he, he trusts God. But he's like, God, how can you say you're going to use the, the Babylonians to, to judge us? And this is similar uh, to what's going on in Lamentations. I mean, they're worse than we are. How can you do that? You're too holy to look on evil. I don't understand this. And I think if we're honest... There's a lot of times in life where we have to say, God, I trust you, but I don't get this. I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing here. This doesn't make sense to me. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's the idea of lamenting. God's big enough to handle this. Now listen, I'm not discounting the fact, and I've certainly experienced this many times, that God can give us supernatural peace and joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Uh, I called Judy Burton the other day because she broke her wrist and had, had some surgery. I was calling to pray with her. Like I'm calling her. She's like praising the Lord. It's like, well, at least I didn't get a concussion. At least it wasn't my shoulder. So I'm calling to pray with her, but I'm going to feel like I need to pray and confess my sins because I'm getting convicted because I complain about less than that. And, and, and that's a wonderful attitude to have, but I... Uh, but it's, there's nothing wrong either sometimes when we're so broken. All we got is questions or cries or screams. As long as we're directing them to the Lord. That's the idea of lamenting. So again, a godly response to suffering is lament. Now, what does it look like to lament? And what I want to give you this morning from 
the book of Lamentations, is, is four characteristics of lamenting that help us see what it looks like and, and hopefully apply it to our lives. So just to review last week just a little bit, remember that uh, God had been warning his people through the prophet Jeremiah. They were unfaithful to him. They had become idolaters, and, and they rejected uh, what God was saying to them through Jeremiah. They heaped up false teachers who tickled their ears and told them that everything was going to be okay and they weren't really going to have to go into captivity. But eventually, uh, you know, we read where God said, uh, you know, there's no more remedy. Enough is enough. You've uh, turned your back on me long enough. And so I'm going to send uh, the, the judgment that I had, uh, had prophesied through Jeremiah. And so uh, the Babylonians came and took them captive and, um, you know, destroyed Jerusalem just uh, now, God had said it's only going to be for 70 years, but it's an awful 70 years. They're in uh, slave labor. They're in captivity. Many have been killed. Uh, they're, the Babylonians had just done terrible things uh, to them. And, you know, we will re- actually read a verse that says this, but I referenced last week. I mean, they were starving. They had to eat their babies. They were uh, being sexually violated, things like I mean, it was awful. And so this is what they're facing. And, and, and in the middle of that, uh, what did they do? Well, they lamented. Well, what does that look like? What is, can it look like for us? So number one, it means that we honestly pour out our grief and our pain. We honestly pour out our grief and our pain. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, She, and this is speaking figuratively of, of the city, of the people, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All of her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. And five times in this opening chapter, it uses the phrase, no one to comfort. You ever felt like there's nobody to comfort you? Five times in this opening chapter, it speaks of them groaning. That's where they were. So if we're going to pour out our grief and our pain uh, to the Lord and and believe that he can handle it, what's that look like? Well, uh, there can be three different aspects of this. Number one, we grieve our personal loss and pain. Uh, uh, The writer, who I think is Jeremiah, says again, starting in verse 12, Is it nothing to you, all you you who pass by, behold and see, if there is any sorrow like my sorrow? Which the Lord, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above, he has sent fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread out a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. I mean, he's hurting personally. And i, I got to imagine part of Jeremiah's struggle is he's got to be feeling like, Lord, I've been faithful to you. I've declared the message you told me to declare. They've hated me. They've mistreated me. And, and now when the judgment has come, I'm experiencing it as much as everybody else. And I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he's thinking, oh, that doesn't even seem fair. You know, a lot of times we think life isn't fair. We think, why am I experiencing this? Uh, it's, other, it's other people's fault, really, but I'm experiencing it. But, but something that I, I sort of pointed out last week, but I'm not sure that I made it clear enough, 
You know, one of the things I was saying about sin and its effects is everything is interconnected. And because everything is interconnected, the righteous can't be exempt from the suffering of sin and of this fallen world in which we live. And that's what he was experiencing. It wasn't his fault, but remember, when we sow things in our lives, we reap later than what we sow, we reap more than what we sow, but other people reap some of what we sow too. And the people that are closest to us is who it affects the most. And that's just how life works. It may not be fair, but it's reality. Everything is interconnected together. So we can grieve, we can lament our own personal pain, but we also, we grieve with those close to us. Look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. He says, the Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He's not talking about, you know, just himself. He says, all my mighty men. He says, he's called an assembly against me, but to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eye, my eye overflows with water, because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. Then he speaks of his children. He says, my children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. So a, a godly response to suffering isn't just totally self-centered, but it's grieving for and with those around us as well. You know, I think the reason that so many people are in so much emotional pain right now is because so many different people have been going through things over the last few years that, that again, we're interconnected, it affects us. As Christians, it should affect us. First uh, Corinthians 12, 25 and 26, uh, Paul says that there be no schism, no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to enter into both the sorrows and the joys of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we want that when we're suffering, but are we that for other people when they're suffering? And what that means then practically is, a preacher by the name of Phillips Brooks said a long time ago, to be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. The man who gives himself to other men can never be a wholly sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come with every deeper consecration, a before untasted joy, but in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that it was beyond his power to feel before. What he's saying is, if we care about other people, if we minister to other people, you're going to have joy that you didn't have, you're going to have pain that you didn't have. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Uh, so, three, we grieve over the pain and brokenness uh, around us. He said in chapter 1, verse 17, Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. 
The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing uh, among them. He's just concerned for his people. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, he says, The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads. This was a symbol of mourning and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and infants faint in the, in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where's grain and wine? In other words, they don't have anything to eat. And they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city and, and as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. He's, he's grieving for his people. He's grieving for the things that are, that are going on in the world uh, around us. And, and again, you know, as there's so much information now saying that you know, we're in this mental health crisis. Part of the reason is just because we see all the suffering in the world. And we got to deal with it in some way. And, and he's saying part of the way that we deal with it is through lament. So we can lament Things outside of us, things that are happening to us, things that are happening in the world, things that are happening to people that we care about. But this shouldn't just be about things that are outside of us. It should also be about things that are inside of us because biblically we're also called to lament our sin. And so, just a simple question. Do we ever mourn or grieve our sin? Particularly not just the consequences of sin, not how sin hurts us, but do we grieve our sin itself because of what it does to the heart of our God? Jeremiah said this, he said, The Lord is righteous, chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against His commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I call for my lovers, but they deceive me. My priests and my elders breathe their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. So he's grieving the circumstances, but he's talking about how he rebelled against God. Verse 20, he says, See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me. Why? Because I've been very rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves. At home it is like death. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. He's saying, judge them too. Let all their wickedness come before you. And do to them as you have done to me for all of my transgressions. For my sighs are many and my heart is faint. Do you hear him? Even while he's you know, crying out for their enemies to be judged, even that while he's crying out about the circumstances... He's owning his own sin. He says, the Lord is righteous because I rebelled against his commandment. In other words, God's righteous in doing this. I deserve it. Um, He says, my soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. He says, uh, do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions. My sighs are many and my heart is faint. 
He's owning his sin. Do we own our sin or do we excuse our sin or do we you know, blame everything on things outside of us and do we focus on the problems in the world and you know, the people who are causing those problems? I, I think we all need to have a realization in an honest moment with ourselves and say what the famous evangelist Billy Sunday said about himself when he said, I've had more problems with Billy Sunday than any man on the face of the earth. That's the reality, to look in the mirror. Listen to what the New Testament says. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If we want to experience the comfort of God, we have to mourn. But in a context there, I think he's talking about mourning over sin. James chapter 4, starting in verse 6, says, He gives more grace. Do you want more grace from God? How do we get it? Well, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we want to receive grace, we have to humble ourselves. What's that look like? He says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Look what he says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We want God to lift us up. We want God to give us more grace. We have to humble ourselves, submit to Him, confess our sins, mourn over our sin. You know, be broken, be sorrowful, stop making excuses, stop blaming other people, stop trying to fix everybody else, and look in the mirror and deal with what's wrong with us. So again... Do you mourn, do you grieve, do you repent of your sin? Listen, the only way to be saved, it's not just, you know, uh, spouting off some prayer. It's when we grieve our sin, we're broken over our sin, and we come to Jesus Christ as the only remedy for our sin. If we really want to walk with Him daily as believers and experience His grace and power and the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it comes from truly grieving, repenting of our sin, uh, you know, bringing it back to Jesus at the foot of the cross, receiving the cleansing of His blood afresh and anew to restore our fellowship. And, but again, it's not just, oh God, I'm sorry if I did anything wrong today. It's being specific It's naming our sin. It's being sorrowful for our sin. Again, not the consequences, but what it does to our good God. So, again, we can lament the things going on around us, but we're called to lament the things going on inside of us. Number three, third characteristic of, of lamenting is that we cry out to God. You see prayer throughout the book of Lamentations. As Rogop said in the article, lamenting is more than a cry. Really what it is, it's, it's a prayer. It's a particular kind of prayer, but it's prayer. Uh, look again at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 20. He says, See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. 
This isn't, you know, like God blesses food. God bless everybody and, you know, take care of everybody. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep kind of thing. I mean, he's crying from his heart. Chapter 2, starting in verse 18, it says, Their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited us to a feast day, the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there is no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up my enemies have destroyed. That's pretty raw, isn't it? It's really honest, isn't it? But it's in the Bible. And I hope that what this does, you might be like, you know, uh, this is depressing. You know, Hebrew poetry, I mean, but honestly, this is where our our hearts and our minds are sometimes, right? Like, God, I don't get it. I mean, he's like, Lord, uh, he says, to whom have you done this? You know, you've got the, got the, the women eating their babies to stay alive. God, how could you do this to your God, I don't get this. But he raised that up to the Lord. He took his questions uh, to him. And what I'm saying, where I hope this sets us free, is that we can do the same thing. Um, let's go back to the 13th Psalm that Brett read before. And, and, and this, it's an example of a prayer of lament. He says, how long, O Lord? And in that, he's turning to God, but he's turning to God with this question saying, you know, I don't get this. How long are you going to get this? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face uh, to me? And so, uh, Vrogoff says a a, a lament is, it's a turning to God, but it's bringing your complaint to God. But ultimately, it's asking boldly for help and choosing uh, to trust. He says in verse 3, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the the sleep of death. In verse 5, he says, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And, And so, you know, as he turns to God, even with his questions and doubts and struggles and suffering, God does something in him. You see, as long as you're turning to the Lord, whatever your questions are, you're still acting in faith. I mean, think about it this way. Um, you ever had one of those Saturdays where you could, like, sleep in, but you have little kids... And at like 6 o'clock in the morning, um, you know, they're coming and asking for something. They're like wanting breakfast, 
or something like that, and you're like, I mean, like, you know, if it was a school morning, I'd have to be physically dragging you out of bed. And here's a day I could have slept till 8 o'clock uh, or 7 if you're kind of old, and, but, but you're in here bothering me. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're not going to the neighbor's house because they trust you. But here's the flip side of that. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore, his family, you know, R- R- Russ Moore was a former head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty uh, Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. They adopted a baby for, for, from Russia. And, and he wrote a book about adoption. And he describes going to an orphanage in Russia when they were in the adoption process. And he says this. He says, the silence from the nursery was eerie. The babies in the cribs never cried. Not because they never needed anything, but because they had learned that no one cared enough to answer. Children who are confident of the love of a caregiver cry. For the Christian, our lament when taken to our Father in heaven is proof of our relationship with God, our connection to a great caregiver. You can cry out to God. You can cry out to Jesus in your pain, your grief, your suffering, your doubt, your confusion, your questions. And He's there for you. He's bigger than all that. But last, where's the hope in all this? I mean, you know, in Psalm 13, David ended up with hope. I think our hope, because, you know, like I said last week, every part of the Bible is about Jesus. Where do we see Jesus in Lamentations? Here's where we see Jesus in lamenting. It's this statement. We hope in the God who sorrows with us and will ultimately remove every sorrow from us. We hope in the God who sorrows with us and will ultimately remove every sorrow from us. I mean, think about Jesus. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb with his friends, for his friends, even though he was about to raise him from the dead. Luke 19, 41, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, because of the judgment that was coming. So I imagine that he was weeping, in a sense, over this judgment as well. We see in Scripture that Jesus is the man of sorrows who died in our place on the cross. Listen and, and read along in part of Isaiah chapter 53. It says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not. His mouth. Our Savior is a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He carried that. He didn't just carry our sin. He carried that. But you know, because of that, because of his sorrow and suffering, Jesus understands and ministers to us in our sorrow and suffering. Hebrews 4, 14-16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, uh, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That's his invitation to us. And you see what he's saying? He's saying he's been there and he understands, but he conquered it all and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So he has the power to do something about it. And you see, because of that, because Jesus died on the cross and paid the price for our sins, and because he defeated death, hell, and the grave, through this, through his sorrow and suffering, he will ultimately remove all of our sorrow and suffering. Revelation 21, starting verse 3, says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Ultimately, our hope is in Jesus, the man of sorrows who suffered for us, who died for our sins, who empathizes with us, who sympathizes with us, but who ultimately, when it's all said and done, is going to fix all of this and restore this to what he created it to be, to make all things new. And if we're in Christ, we can participate in that new creation, that new heaven, that new earth as a new creation in Christ forever and ever. That's our hope. In November 2013, a typhoon struck the Philippines. It was the strongest tropical cyclone ever recorded at landfall, the strongest ever in terms of sustained wind speeds, uh, reaching a one-minute speed at its height of 195 miles an hour. Caused catastrophic damage, destroying whole towns and villages, there were 6,300 confirmed deaths, which, you know, them believing that, knowing that the death, hole, death toll was much, much higher than that, rendered about a thousand people, or I'm sorry, a million people homeless. 
And um, a man by the a theologian by the name of Rico Villanueva wrote an article, and he talked about a little girl, and he said one little girl managed to reach one of the excavation evacuation centers as the typhoon came. The waters began rushing in, and her mother shouted at her to go up to the second floor. At that moment, she cried out this prayer, uh, translated, Jesus, please, enough. Three words. Jesus, please, enough. And the article says, then she felt something or someone lifting her up to safety, and she survived. A staff worker with a Christian relief effort talked with her later and heard her story. And Villanueva says of this, that this Filipino girl belongs to a country where the most popular image of Jesus is the crucified or the suffering Christ. Our view of Jesus as God who is with us in our sufferings enables us to cling on to the God who is also our Savior and Father, even in times of disasters. This child's three-word prayer, Jesus, please, enough, expresses this theology, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is in control even during disasters, that he's sovereign that he's judged, that we may not understand all of this, but that he is also the Savior and the Deliverer. Deliverer. You see, that's a lot of the message of the Bible. It's a lot of the book of Lamentations. Remember, God is ultimately going to rescue them after a period of time. God is both judge and Savior in Jesus Christ. Uh, we uh, don't understand all this. There's things that confuse us. There's things that we wrestle with. There's things that hurt us. But even in the midst of that, we can come to our Father with the faith of a little child and say, Jesus, please enough. We can lament, we can cry out to him, we can express our grief and our sorrow and our pain to him. We can cry out to Jesus and he listens. We, we can grieve our sin and he uh, forgives. We can call on his name in, in faith because even though there's so many things we don't understand, stamped over all of that is the cross of Jesus Christ that symbolizes divine suffering. He died for us. Us. He suffered for us to bring the forgiveness of sins, to make the way open to the Father again, to eternally make things new and make things right. But he suffers uh, with us. He identifies with our suffering. He empathizes with our suffering. He sympathizes with our suffering because he suffered. He's not a God that's just way out there uh, somewhere. He became one of us. He left the splendor and the perfection of heaven uh, to live live in the mess of this earth as a man, you know, limiting himself, divesting himself of the outward display of his glory. Uh, he uh, was betrayed. He was tortured. He was crucified. He died for us. We can say, Jesus, please, enough, because of who he is and because of what he's done for us and because of how he identifies himself with us. Let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes.